It's Thursday, March 5th, 2020. From KLCC News, this is the Northwest Passage. Coronavirus is in the Northwest. We discuss best practices for prevention and what state officials are doing. The short legislative session wraps up in Salem on March 8th. Will anything get accomplished amidst the Republican walkout? Eugene Forge School Superintendent Gustavo Balderas is leaving for a post in Washington State. Federal money helps at-risk people keep housing. And Ani's obsession with the Bachelor TV shows. These stories and more on this week's Northwest Passage podcast. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC. everybody. Welcome to the Northwest Passage. I'm Rachel McDonald, KLCC News Director. I'm the host of Morning Edition, Ani Katz. I'm reporter Brian Bull. And I'm reporter Chris Lehman. Well, we've got coronavirus here in the Northwest. Ani, what's the latest news on this? I want you to just picture all of us in full protective gear. That's how we're recording. No, I'm kidding. Not, don't do that. <laughs> so most health officials are saying that coronavirus is probably a little bit more widespread in Oregon than we already know. At the time of recording, of course, this is a little hard to talk about because this will be something that you could listen to in a few days and things might have changed. At the time of recording, there are three cases in Oregon, and we've talked with several Lane County health officials, and that's just in Lane County, who are saying, listen, it's probably already here. There are probably people walking around with it that's just not severe enough to, you know, have been tested for. Um, so Governor Kate Brown has asked in preparation, she's asked Vice President Mike Pence, who's leading the response to the outbreak and is in Washington at the time that we're recording this. Um, she's asked him for 400,000 respirator masks, gowns and gloves, disposable protective suits and up to 100 ventilators. And I've got to be honest, that doesn't sound like enough. Um, and this is all just in case the coronavirus spreads more widely. She's asked for increased flexibility on criteria for testing on COVID-19, and apparently that is happening. They are kind of um, widening the amount of people that are allowed to be tested. Um, It's not something you can just walk into the doctor's office and, and get. And Ani, to clarify with those masks, the idea is that those masks would be for healthcare professionals to protect them from yes. the virus. So I was telling you guys before we hit record, I almost had a little violent episode at the car dealership <laughs> earlier this week because almost made the news. I, I it really did. I, I almost became a headline um, because after a national news story about how masks really need to be just for healthcare workers, surgical masks are flimsy. They're for healthcare workers, you know, to, to do what they do. Those N95 and higher masks that some of us get for the wildfires, those also need to be for healthcare workers. They also don't necessarily work because because they need to be fitted properly. So as soon as that story wrapped up at the dealership, these college kids that were sitting near me started calling around to local stores asking for masks. Of course, they're all sold out. Oh, I did on. almost <laughs> leap across the table and punch them. It's oh. <laughs> like, pay attention. Oh, so wow. stop buying masks. Really, what you can be doing now is they say preparing for you know, having some food around in your house in case you can't leave for a little bit, in case you're stuck at home, have some soups in the freezer, have some pasta, some canned tomato sauce, stock up on medication that you have prescriptions for. Only one member of our family has that. I've already done that. And wash your hands and stop touching your face. If you are one of those people that has kind of like a lower uh, tolerance, you know, like a, a weakened immune system, 
Now is the time to start being a little bit more careful about where you're going, the amount of people you're spending time with. And again, you know, just if you see someone coughing, like don't be in their direct area. And um, also, uh, yeah. they say cough into a tissue and dispose, but as opposed to just coughing to your elbow, they yes. kind of upgraded that since okay. the initial cases. Yeah. And I will say even uh, so at, at my kid's school here in, in 4J, um, you know, in the bathrooms, they have signs about COVID-19. And what's amazing is that for m- one of my kids who's a kindergartner uh, to be coming home and, and asking me about COVID-19 and that they're really happy that the school's talking about washing hands more frequently. My husband saw the principal wiping down heavily used services this morning um, at school. So Good. this is, it's not hype. It's not paranoia. We need to be taking it seriously. Um but, you know, uh, I think I mean, we're at the very beginning right now. So like earlier this week, for example, Rachel, you spoke with Andy Vibora of mm-hmm. Traveling County about major events being canceled. Yeah, I asked him if he knew of any events that had been canceled. And at that point, he didn't. He said they were, you know, ch- checking in with event organizers. And, you know, while there were concerns and, and people were, were considering, you know, what their options were. At that point, he hadn't heard of any cancellations. Since then, um, we did find out that the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference scheduled to take place at the University of Oregon did get canceled. So that would be taking place right now. Um, but they did decide to cancel it earlier this week because um, of concerns about coronavirus. And this is an international conference environmental lawyers, activists gather and, you know, it's it's a quite a big um, event in the kind of environmental community. So um, that was a that was a big cancellation. I did hear on NPR the conversation about are they going to cancel the Olympics? That's a big question mark. Yeah, it which is. At this yeah. point, they haven't said that. Yeah, there are a few different options that they're weighing. It seems like the most likely if they do anything would be to just delay it. Um, instead of full on canceling it. But I think that, again, you know, a a big event like that in the hot summer where it's going to be crowded in Asia is, you know, you know, that's where the that's where the outbreak started. Uh, And it does feel a little like, you know, tone deaf to not be taking that seriously. I I think we're going to see some effects uh, happening against the travel industry, too. I just heard this morning that there was a uh, fatality from coronavirus on a cruise ship just off Mm -hmm. California. And we've heard in the previous week, too, of another cruise ship that had been isolated and people were, or a couple weeks ago, had been uh, potentially infected with coronavirus. And so between people feeling that they might be stranded on a ship with hundreds, if not thousands of other people from across the globe to air travel, I mean, this could be something that's just going to start cascading as people become more and more aware and paranoid of where they could be infected. I've gotten two emails this week um, from United Airlines and Alaska Airlines about, and this is not, you know, necessarily uh, to my work email, but just as a frequent traveler uh, saying that um, we are not going to charge change or cancellation fees anymore for travel booked after a certain date that's taking place between basically now and I think sometime in May, Hmm. um, which is really unusual, especially for an airline like United that does not have a great customer service (laughs) record. Um, And that's just me personally. Um, But also, um, we had a story this morning on the news about how um, they're going to start cutting routes because uh, they are seeing a drop in passengers. Um, And Alaska is actually having a huge sale right now. Um, They're offering like 
uh, I think the it's like $50 fares to a lot of places and like $100 each way fares to Hawaii right now from the West Coast, which is pretty cheap. So I'm just mm. saying if you want to risk it, it's a great time <laughs> to go to Hawaii. <laughs> and spring break is just a few weeks it, away. That's so a friend of mine who is a, a doctor said that she thinks the real explosion in Corona is going to happen after all the we all have spring break at, at different times. Some schools are mid-March, some schools are early April. And so she thinks that after that kind of season wraps up, that's when we're going to see the kind of explosion of Corona mm. because huh. we're all going to be tra- I'm, I'm traveling during spring break you know we're just we're going to be swapping germs with fun people from everywhere although we have also heard from health officials that once the weather warms up there may be fewer cases and that would be a pause though that would be a pause until In, it starts until up again. the following mm-hmm. season. exactly yeah wow. and so one more just little anecdote a friend of mine speaking of stocking up a friend of mine was at costco earlier this week and um, of course it's crowded um and uh you know that's to be expected but strangely I mean I get like people buying the hand sanitizer and the soap and everything and Kleenex um, but there's an employee from Costco standing in front of the toilet paper limiting how much people can take because people are hoarding and my thinking is like wait we do people not understand this is a respiratory illness like I could I could make all sorts of inappropriate jokes here but like why are we stocking up on toilet paper it's very confusing I don't get it well, I, I think it's because they're they're seeing stories from China of people being, you know, told that they can't leave their house for weeks at a time. So, it, you know, if you can't leave your house, I, I guess you could, you know, order it uh, from Amazon or whatever and have it delivered to you. But what if the, you know, the delivery people can't leave their house either? So it, it isn't necessarily that it's to treat a symptom. It's that you just might not be able to get it at all. I, at least I assume that's what's going on. I picture all these fleets of drones dropping toilet papers on top of <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, I just, I mean, just, you know, just for, for what it's worth, like costco size thing of toilet paper is enough to last a family. One of those is enough to last a family for a long time. So mm. I'm just saying I don't think you need more than one. <laughs> Go easy on the toilet paper. <laughs> well, and, and we live in a, a part of the country that doesn't have, um, you know, leafy trees right now. So your your options from nature are limited. Well said, Chris. <laughs> but thanks for bringing up that uh, that alternative. <laughs> of course, because it's so much coronavirus this week, and it is all you know information that is useful and that. We feel like you need to know that there were other things that happened this week, one of which was Springfield has a new city manager. Nancy Newton is currently the assistant executive for Sacramento County in California. Uh, Springfield Mayor Christine Lundberg says that she was the unanimous choice of the city council and she'll be starting soon. So, Chris, you're up in Salem. Any chance the legislature will get anything done as we head into the final days of this short session? Very likely the the chances are, are zero uh, at this point. Uh, I mean, really, as every hour goes by and we don't hear of an agreement, the, the chances are dwindling. The deadline is Sunday night at midnight, uh, which is to say, I guess, 11.59 p.m. on Sunday. That's when the legislature has to end, according to the Oregon Constitution, based on, on when it begun in early February. But Practically speaking, uh, you know, you can't sort of come in at 6 p.m. on Sunday and, and finish up 
the the dozens of remaining bills that haven't been acted on. You know, f- practically speaking, you really have to start that um, either Friday or, or Saturday morning at the earliest. But even that would require some rules suspensions and and some bipartisan uh, cooperation that seems to be non-existent at the moment. So uh, basically, if we don't see any action going on by the end of the day Friday, I think you might as well just pull the plug on the session. I'm guessing Democrats will show up in Salem on Saturday and Sunday just to kind of make a point that we were here to the bitter end. But uh, again, practically speaking, the the legislative session is over, although, you know, we're recording this on on Thursday. Things could change very rapidly, but it just doesn't seem like that a a lot of um, people's attention is, is focused elsewhere right now on the coronavirus situation. And so maybe there's even questions about whether it's a good idea to have the legislature come in. But I mean, part of what they do functionally is to respond to emergencies. So it's a bit of a catch-22 as far as that goes. But bottom line, I don't expect to see any legislative action happening through the remainder of this session. Whether the governor calls a special session later in March is an open question right now because she could do that. And, you know, if you didn't introduce that um, contentious cap-and-trade bill, you could basically resurrect everything else. I mean, you sort of have to start the process over again, but you could do that pretty quickly if you wanted to. Anyway, there's a lot of question marks, and, and we'll see how it plays out the rest of this month. So, Chris, you mentioned that, you know, um, part of what their job is is to help us respond to emergencies. And obviously the healthcare workers are more on the front lines of coronavirus. But do you think that there's going to be any blowback to any of these Republicans for kind of not being there at the beginning of this, you know, outbreak, pandemic, whatever it ends up being? Well, it's hard to say. I, I mean, there isn't like a specific... Um, coronavirus response bill that um, is dying at the moment. I mean, I guess there wouldn't really be any point in introducing one. Uh, it's it's not quite, you know, because so much of the resources and, and guidance has been coming from the federal level. And of course, the Oregon Health Authority has been very instrumental uh, here locally in Oregon. But they, the Oregon Health Authority isn't saying, well, we're not going to act on coronavirus unless you give us more money. I mean, they're, they're carrying out their mission anyway. Um, you know, whether they blow through some of their budget, um, you know, more quickly than they thought. I mean, you could sort of backfill that um, later on in in the budget cycle. So, I, I think any political consequences for Republicans will come more just generally on the concept of their walking out rather than, you know, they did so in the face of coronavirus. Although, I mean, if I was a political strategist coming up with some ads for the the fall election cycle. You know, uh, I mean, you could certainly spin up something that that made it look like the Republicans left the state in in our time of dire need. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, it seems like in some ways to to be a sort of a cynical political, you know, looking at this politically, that this is an opportunity for someone like Governor Kate Brown to really shine and say, I'm taking care of this, you know, whether or not the Republican members of the legislature are with me. I was here. We were all here. Where were you? Sort of. Yeah. yeah. I think I think that's a good point. And we are cynical, right? So we are. <laughs> and bit. in an election year, so we're right. doubly cynical. Exactly. <laughs> so Brian, you've been working on some some non coronavirus related stories <laughs> this week. Shifting gears here away from coronavirus, yes. Um, 
Well, this week I reported on the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's Resident Opportunity and Self-Sufficiency Service Coordinators Program, uh, giving out grants to a couple organizations. One of the recipients is uh, Eugene-based Homes for Good. Uh, Brian, that's a pretty long title for a program. What's the goal? (laughs) Yes, it is a very long title. That was half my story. Uh, <laughs> yes, the uh, Resident Opportunity and Self-Sufficiency Service Coordinators Program is, well, actually, I'll let uh, the Executive Director of Homes for Good, Jacob Fox, explain it. He, he essentially says this helps residents in federally subsidized housing connect with the support services if they're dealing with very significant mental or physical health challenges. Recently, our resident services coordinator jumped in to help an elderly man who had some hoarding issues going on in his unit. The resident services coordinator worked closely with property management and community-based partners and helped that person reduce the hoarding in his unit to a level that met the lease guidelines. So we were able to prevent an eviction. So Fox says that this funding is very important because it keeps many of what's called high-barrier people from being evicted and likely ending up on the streets. Warm Springs Housing Authority, by the way, has received 138000 towards their efforts. Uh, Homes for Good received more than $235,000 in federal money. They've been receiving this for more than a decade. And so with all the insecurity, uh, Fox says, with you know federal funding being in limbo for housing, this is actually very good news. Hmm. And then the other big story that came out of Eugene, after five years, Superintendent Gustavo Balderas is leaving the 4J district. Uh, last fall, he won Oregon Superintendent of the Year. He was the first Latino to win that distinction. And then just recently, uh, not even quite a month ago, he was deemed the National Superintendent of the Year. So coming right off of the heels of that, uh, we found out that he is departing. Uh, back in the fall, he was uh, talking about how he's living the American dream. He grew up in eastern Oregon, the child of migrant farm workers, and he was very dedicated to diversifying 4J's faculty and administration. He says the district now has 15% teachers of color compared to 30% students of color. And he said this is all very important because, you know, for student success, students need to look up and see people who look like them in leadership. Here's Balderas on OPB's Think Out Loud on September 2019 talking about efforts to diversify schools. I don't know one school district that's not trying to diversify their workforce to try and get more uh, people working in school districts that look like the kids that they're working with. And that's something that we've pressed here in Eugene, where our principal group, for example, uh, as this year, we're close to 40% of our principals in our schools, our 32 campuses, are principals of color. That's something we're very proud of, and that was really intentional. So where is Superintendent Balderas headed now? Balderas is headed towards the Edmonds School District outside Seattle, and this will be a little bit of a transition. Uh, That district has 22,000 students compared to the roughly 17,000 here in Eugene. The district website announced its offer, and he is expected to start at the beginning of July. So it's been five years of being on the job here. He's done. He's won some great accolades and made some great strides. And I guess now 4J has to open up its doors for a new superintendent. Do we have any sense of a timeline for that? Obviously, I would assume they'd want someone in place, you know, before or right after he's gone. Yeah, no, I mean, at least right before the next academic year starts in September. So uh, I imagine they're going to pull out all the stops and try to get in a candidate who can fill in these pretty big shoes. 
I expect they'll have an interim for the interim. (laughs) Yes, yes, an interim uh, superintendent. I'm not quite sure who that'll fall to, but um, yeah, we we did put out an invite uh, through the schools to talk to Superintendent Balderos before he departs, just kind of talk about his leadership and his hopes and his expectations for his new role, as well as whoever replaces him. Great. Well, just real quick, um, one more piece of news from this week. In the ever-evolving saga of the teen climate lawsuit against the federal government, the most recent news had been that in January, a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the climate lawsuit should not go to trial. Now, the plaintiffs, um, which include 21 young people, ages uh, 12 to 23 years old, they are asking a full panel of the Ninth Circuit to hear the case and hoping that it will go to trial so they can basically call on the federal government to um, change its practices and do something about climate change. So we'll see how that pans out. Do they expect the uh, full panel to give them better odds? They do because it was a split decision among the three judge panel and in their in their ruling say that they agreed with the premise of the case that yes, Climate change is real, caused by human beings. The government has encouraged an energy system that perpetuates this. They just, the two judges that were in the majority said, this is not up to the courts to deal Mm. with. Interesting. Mm. This is the Northwest Passage from KLCC News. We'll be right back. Support for KLCC's Northwest Passage is provided by Columbia Bank. Columbia Bank team members have experience in the unique challenges of multiple industries, from healthcare to manufacturing. Learn more about their services for the business community at ColumbiaBank.com. Columbia Bank, where relationships rule, member FDIC. We're listening to the Northwest Passage. I'm Rachel McDonald with Brian Bull, Ani Katz, and Chris Lehman. And it's time for us to talk about one more thing that we um, noticed this week in the news. We can start with Chris. Chris, you want to go? Well, I, of course, uh, big news this week on the national uh, political scene uh, when the presidential race was the Super Tuesday primaries. Normally, I, I kind of think that would be a lot bigger news than it was um, this week with the coronavirus and and here in Oregon, the, the political stalemate at the state capitol. And, and nevertheless, it, it was big news. It, it bolstered uh, Joe Biden's uh, hopes for the White House, uh, Bernie Sanders hanging in there. Um, it was the meant, basically meant the end for Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Senator Warren dropped out of the race this week. Of course, here in Oregon, it leaves the question of what does that mean for the Oregon Democratic primary, which still seems an eternity away. It's it's more than two months away in, in late May. And usually the race is decided by then. Uh, four years ago, there was still some intrigue between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, as you may remember, won the Oregon Democratic primary for president in 2016 fairly handily over Hillary Clinton. Of course, Hillary Clinton then became the Democratic nominee based on her um, you know, performance in other states. So will there still be an active race between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden uh, in late May, or will one of those two candidates have 
pulled ahead of the pack. That, of course, that remains to be seen, as as I've said s- several times in this podcast so far. But it could be it could be interesting. It 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 could be a whole bunch of nothing. But at any rate, it does seem to be uh, as of now uh, a, a very much a two person race for the Democratic nomination for president. And the rhetoric has really uh, gotten a lot more heated between the two candidates mm-hmm. too. Certainly. Well, yeah, they know, they know who to uh, focus their their uh, barbs uh, at right now. When you had a field of 10, it was, I mean, people kind of went after President Trump, of course, but, um, you know, you didn't really know which of the other 10 <laughs> candidates or so to, to focus on. Now, Joe Biden and, and Bernie Sanders, of course, have a very clear idea of how they want to approach this. I've been working with a freelancer this week, Ida Harden. And her story looks at how it came to be that the number 24 jersey that was retired after the U of O basketball great Bev Smith graduated in the 1980s is now back in play due to oversight, people not paying attention. Um, So Ruthie Hebert is now wearing the number 24. And so Ida's story looks at how this happened. She also kind of looks at how current star Sabrina Unescu is a player on the level of Bev Smith, who was a two-time All-American. She also played in the Olympics and was a coach of the women's team at the U of O. Here's a quote from Bev's former coach, Elwin Heine. She's very comparable in many ways, so many ways, to Sabrina. And I, I look at that as a, as a compliment to Sabrina. In this story, Bev didn't want to make a big deal out of this oversight about her jersey, but she did talk to Coach Kelly Graves and to Ruthie, And the compromise is that after Ruthie graduates, the number 24 will go back into retirement. Here's a quote from Bev Smith. And I think we came to a really good compromise that she would wear it for her the rest of her career and that we would officially retire it both in in her name and my name. So this story is on our website, klcc.org. It's a story that I don't think we've heard anywhere else. And um, it's pretty good. Ooh. It is. I'm a we. My kids uh, are are kids sports kids here in Eugene, and Bev uh, runs kids sports, and so we get to see her. She actually shows up to practices. She runs clinics for the kids. She's very tall, and um, it's it's nice to see. Uh, it's nice to learn more about her history. Absolutely. So, Brian, what have you got? So last night uh, I was part of a community conversation on building public trust in journalism. This was a very small group of people assembled at the University of Oregon last night, uh, basically discussing what journalistic practices lead to public trust. And it was a very informal conversation. There was four journalism educators, four journalism students, four quote-unquote professional journalists, including myself, and four community members all huddled together in a room just basically discussing ideas over burritos. (laughs) Brian, what prompted this community conversation? Like, why now? It's part of what's called the 32% Project, and about four years ago, just at the height of the campaign season, 2016, uh, there was a study done that showed that public trust in the news media had sunk to an all-time low, with just 32% of Americans saying they had confidence in journalists to report the news fully, accurately, and fairly. Uh, The good news is, in that time, that's kind of inched up just a little bit by about roughly 10 to 12 percentage points. But now it's starting to kind of uh, sink down again a bit because it's an election year. (laughs) People get very contentious about how we report on politics. But uh, essentially what the organizers want to do is they want to take a very close look at the dynamics of public trust and uh, see how people uh, define trust and how journalists could better earn it. So they did a 
kind of a cross-country uh, symposium, if you will, different stops uh, in many different areas. Uh, Eugene, Oregon last night, that was the uh, Pacific Northwest. They've done this in Los Angeles. They've done this in parts of the South and upper uh, New England area. And it's all uh, funded by a grant that basically teaches trust-building practices to the next, journal next generation of journalists. Uh, but the organizers said they felt that if it was a curriculum developed solely by journalism educators, they could risk accidentally perpetuating some of the problems that would have caused people to lose trust in journalism in the first place. So that's why they have this more inclusive, wider group of uh, people discussing the trust in journalism issues. Uh, Todd Milburn is director of the Master's Journalism Program at the University of Oregon. And I asked him why this conversation is so important after last night's event. Journalism is best when it's focused on serving community needs. And I think it's really important as part of the trust building process for journalists to, if they're going to be asking for trust from that community, they need to be willing to extend that trust themselves. So bringing people into the process, having them talk about what is your news organization all about, what are its values, why does it really matter, um, I think is, is just essential. It's a two-way street. So anyway, uh, in, in short, transparency, accountability, uh, helping people understand how the proverbial journalism sausage is made, and also highlighting positive aspects of one's community were among some of the things that helps audiences build better trust and appreciation of their local media. Hmm. And so now the charge is on the next generation of journalists up and coming to kind of incorporate that and see what they can do to help their audiences better appreciate the craft that we do. Well, I think it's a really good conversation to have. And it's one that we have here at KLCC, you know, how to be, um, how to be as transparent and careful as we can be in terms of reporting what's what's true and what we know to be fact right and also too in this age where you know we have the commander-in-chief calling journalists the enemy of the people too i mean there's got to be some blowback um about that too people buying into that argument when in fact you know <laughs> we're not public relations we have to highlight both the positive aspects of any administration but I think people, too, I mean, beyond the national level, also see locally events that are covered, and they want to see things that are uh, reported accurately and highlight good things as well as just not the negative things that are going on in their community. So it's an ongoing process. Just a quick note before I get to the juicy part <laughs> is uh, Daylight Saving Time begins on, uh, I guess it's Saturday night, but technically Sunday. It's like that 2 a.m. Mm -hmm. thing. So don't forget. It's spring forward. Put your clocks oh, forward. So we're I losing an hour. That hour. It's the bad one. Yeah. This is the bad one. But oh, just don't forget one. or else you're going to be late for your basketball game on Sunday. <laughs> they should do that on Saturday. Uh, they should do that a couple days earlier. They should. And parents should start doing it like a week before. Because <laughs> <laughs> the Monday after we lose that hour it's is awful. just the worst. I know. Um, <laughs> so be a national holiday. Yeah, just like Election Day and <laughs> Daylight Saving Day. Yeah, really. <laughs> so... Um, I just want for a second for you to picture a Venn diagram of the Bachelor franchise, which is a show on a shows, a collection of shows on ABC, NPR listeners slash, I guess, public radio employees 
And there's a Venn diagram. And there's, I think, just me right in the middle of the overlap. (laughs) Um, This week, I got to um, finally air an interview that I conducted with um, Becca Kufrin, who was the 14th Bachelorette uh, in the franchise. She's traveling around the country now as part of a Bachelor Live on Stage event that they're going around to, you know, cities all over the country, Mesa, Arizona, Eugene, Oregon, Portland, um, and, of course, all over. And they're kind of doing like a weird mini version of The Bachelor with a local bachelor and then bachelorettes competing for him. There's limos involved on stage. So I got to sit down uh, with Becca. This was actually a few months ago and then finally worked on... um, you know, uh, editing the interview and packaging it together for on air. It was a it was a tricky, you know, just a little pulling behind, you know, pulling back the curtain. It was a tricky line to walk. And I told her that when we sat down, because I said, listen, I'm a fan of the franchise, which, you know, I don't care if you judge me, whatever. I know you're both looking at me. <laughs> I judge you. But you, exactly. You can judge, judge away. Um and I said, I've got I've to toe this line of like, I'm a fan of the franchise and I kind of want to gossip with you and like just ask you all kinds of questions. But I also am the host of Morning Edition on a public radio station where I'm guessing a lot of people don't watch the show or any of the shows. Or actively dislike the show. Or actively <laughs> dislike the show. And that's fine, Rachel. I accept you for that. <laughs> <laughs> and we accept you. And exactly. See, we just love each other here. Kind of. So... <laughs> So um, so it was a great interview. She was very friendly. We talked about our love of corgis, which did not make air. Uh, uh, she has a very, very cute corgi. What was really fun yesterday when they were in town kind of doing their, um, you know, before show prep was stalking them on Instagram a little bit and seeing them like eating voodoo donuts. And like Ben Higgins, who was The Bachelor a few seasons before Becca, was golfing at the Eugene Country Club yesterday. So that was kind of fun to just see them around town. I will say, I will fully admit to both of you that I did actually consider you know trying to like find them <laughs> I did not do that because it'd be weird um, but you know I, I will say this it's it is a it <laughs> it's not the classiest thing that I watch for sure but in a time of coronavirus and presidential elections and the media not trusting journalists it's a nice place to bury my sand for like two hours a week and it doesn't air all year round but when it isn't on the air I miss it because it, I, it's like cotton candy. Everybody it's your needs that. Escapist. It's my yes. escapist yeah. thing. We yes. all have it. I mean, you but know. No what? Instagram. No, not all of us. <laughs> uh, sure, Rachel. <laughs> no, no Instagram shot of the uh, couple sharing a, uh, an extended headphone listening to KLCC. I know. I should have. I, sh- I know. I know. I should have asked. Uh, I should have asked next like those time. Tandem bikes only a tandem <laughs> headphone. You know, right. How romantic! Totally. Share one. <laughs> Well, that's excellent. <laughs> Thank you. I was. It was exciting for me. I know it was probably not exciting for most people listening, but it, it was, was fun. For... It was fun to hear about your your guilty pleasure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it was a title. good interview. Exactly. And Thanks. I would be willing to guess because I've been looking at the uh, website demographics. Your Q and A is actually top of the charts. Shut up. It is. So what? See? I am willing oh to God. guess that you're not alone, Ani. As much as I hate to admit it, there's probably a. <laughs> contingent of public radio <laughs> listeners who are also fans of The Bachelor and Bachelorette. Oh my gosh, people, hit me up. We should have like an NPR KLCC Bachelor watching party. I'm just putting it in your I'm Okay, just let's putting not it in go crazy. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Back to coronavirus. <laughs> Thanks everyone for joining us for this week's Northwest Passage podcast. I'm News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm the host of Morning Edition and Bachelor fan, Ani Katz. <laughs> I'm reporter and not Bachelor fan, Brian Bull. <laughs>
And I'm reporter Chris Lehman. <laughs> Chris is not making any comments. <laughs> no, no comment. No comment from Chris. I'm ambivalent on The Bachelor. Bye. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC.